welcome to another edition of Halftime with Chuck and Drew. But, of course, you that's where you were, unless you spun the internet wheel of misfortune and accidentally wound up here with us. Well, no matter the reason how you got here or why you're here, we're glad you're here, unless you're conducting an investigation for the Internal Revenue Service. And all I can say is that, believe me, I did fully report last year all the income I received from selling my fine collection of antique soy sauce bottles. As always, we remind our returning listeners and inform our new ones that Halftime features subjects from two main regions of vast topics, sports and pop culture. We also like to go through the introductions of our motley cast of podcasting wonders. I'm your host and executive producer, perfectly quaffed at a moment's notice, and a regular wearer of clean underwear and socks just in case I do get into that car accident that my mother told me I could avoid by simply wearing clean socks and underwear. Yes, I'm Chuck Moraz, at your service and always you well approved and child and pet safe. On the other side of the mic, again filling in for my usual co-host, Drew Barnett. He's my good friend and the sidecar that will provide the perfect balance for this out-of-control podcasting motorcycle, Tom Lewis. A good day to you, sir. Yes, thank you very much. Good to have you with us again, Tom. Good to be back. All right. We'll see how good it is later on after exactly. we finish the show. <laughs> Well, Tom, this has nothing to do with today's important and life-changing topics, but I went swimming in the depths of the World Wide Web. It's a dangerous even, place to swim. I was going to say, does anyone even call it that anymore? I was doing the research for the show, and uh, I found out that if former Hall of Fame baseball broadcaster Harry Carey was alive today, not only would that surprise a lot of his relatives <laughs> and closest friends and qualify as perhaps the second greatest resurrection in history... Our guy, Harry, who passed away in February of 1998, would be 107 years old and likely still broadcasting and humorously butchering the complicated uh, names of certain players. Yes, or trying to say them backwards. Which is pretty much the same thing because you couldn't tell exactly. one way from the other a lot of times. The interesting thing is uh, when I was looking at some of his bio information, I found the address to his childhood home hmm. online and uh, he lived with his uncle growing up in St. Louis. His mom passed away at an early age. His dad went off to World War I and basically never returned. So he lived with his uncle at 1909 LaSalle Street. It's a 2,700-foot square home that was built in 1885 and is currently valued at, get this, and this is in St. Louis, $435,000. By the way, it's not for sale. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's a nice home. I had a chance to look at it. It's, it's a vintage home in a nice neighborhood in St. Louis. And uh, they did a great job of landscaping around the house so I can see why it's that much. And they also showed some pictures of the inside. It's, it's a pretty cool looking place. For all of his foibles, I miss Harry. I do too. I do too. He was certainly a part of summer baseball for me for many sure years. Was. And uh, he was a summer baseball guy for the Cardinals and Cubs and even for one year for A's fans, too, the White Sox as well. And uh, when you heard Harry Carey, you knew it was baseball time. Absolutely. Now we go into the next part of our show, the part where we discuss what we've been watching, reading, or listening to. And as always, Tom, I allow my co-host to have first crack at this because this kills time in order for me to make something up on the fly. Well, as you know, I'm I'm a fan of of reality TV. Reality, take that for what it's worth, right? Because in an alternate, not universe. all shows are truly reality. But um, and I'm also a big fan of shows that focus on Alaska. Uh, in fact, my wife and I, early in our marriage, actually looked into potentially moving to Alaska and thought better of it. But uh, we still together as as the autumn months set in and the weather starts to cool off start dreaming of Alaska a little bit. So we've been watching a, a couple of series. We've, we've been longtime fans of the series Life Below Zero. Well, there's a spinoff called Life Below Zero Next Generation. And uh, so we've been binge watching that. There were only two seasons available for streaming. So we zipped through that pretty quickly. During uh, the next gen of Life Below Zero, you're introduced to a family that lives close to a town called McCarthy, Alaska which was a, a huge uh, gold rush town uh, down in the southeastern portion of not, not the island strip, but further up on, on the mainland. Hard to get to. There's one dirt road that leads in. Otherwise, it's 
bush plane or boat to get there. Well, we, we happened, after we finished binge-watching that, we happened across another series that's been around for a little while, but it's called Edge of Alaska. And it actually focuses on the people who live in McCarthy, Alaska. And uh, at the time that the show was produced, there were only 42 residents in McCarthy. And it is very rough and tumble. And uh, there's one particular gentleman who has a, a much more commercial and progressive vision of what McCarthy should be. And uh, apparently not everybody's on board with that. I that, think that I have seen that. Uh, some people like the idea, but there are a whole lot of the residents there yes. that want to keep McCarthy the way it is. They're and they there don't because want they all don't the want the tourists exactly. that he wants to bring in. Exactly. They have secrets they'd like to keep, I think. And the more people who show up, the less likely that is. Now, the, the hypocrisy of this is the whole premise is these people want to keep outsiders out and keep McCarthy this well-kept secret. And here they are producing in a nationally syndicated television right. show about yeah. McCarthy, Alaska. It's like telling everybody what your best-kept secrets yes, are. Yes, exactly. But <laughs> it, Don't tell anybody, but this is my secret. Right. And we're early on, but so far, entertaining. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. I need to watch that. Like I said, I think I saw maybe one or two episodes of that, and I did find it pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I started watching the Netflix docu-series Last Chance You, and I know you've had a chance to watch some of that. Mm -hmm. It basically explores young student-athletes, the ones I'm watching are in football right now, who are at various junior colleges looking to prove themselves in the athletic arena in order to earn scholarships at four-year schools so they can play ball there at the next level. Many of these young men come from some pretty tough life circumstances. And the series I'm watching right now deals with the young men from Laney College who play for the football team there. Laney College is in Oakland, California, which is in the process of a revitalization, but at the same time, there are some rough spots. Uh, Laney College also has won, after being sort of the dregs of junior college football in California, they brought in a coach who basically leads them to state championships on a fairly regular basis. So it's interesting how they handle their life circumstances, they often have to go to work after they go to practice. They don't get much time to study. They still have to go to class. They're expected to perform in the classroom as well. There's one young man who actually has to sleep in his car mm. every night. You know, he goes and parks someplace and then goes to work and then he goes to class and then he goes to football practice. But he's keeping it also from his mother. At the same time, he doesn't want her to know that he's in a pretty tough spot because California being California, the rents are pretty high and he can't afford to rent any place, so he sleeps in his car. Wow. And that's just typical of a lot of these young guys who are performers for the Laney College football team. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. It is, and I would recommend it to anybody out there who likes football and is interested in the process young men go through when they're trying to move from junior college and earn a scholarship to a four-year institution. Not sure if it was that particular series, but I think former UK quarterback uh, Terry Touchdown Wilson was featured on, if not that series, uh, was at least part of a program that was featured on a series like that. So, Well, Tom, I've got some good news. Backed by the popular demand initiated by my usual co-host, Drew Barnett, and most of his family members, although some of them have indicated a deep skepticism regarding the information being disseminated during this part of the show, which has also created a major schism in the Barnett family and is certain to impact future holiday gatherings. Tom, it's that part of the show where we marvel at the magnificent manliness of your friend and mine, Drew. Who knew? Who knew about Drew? Wow. <laughs> Drew, as we mentioned earlier, is still on leave from the show, and while the disappointment of his absence has us trying to cheer ourselves up by listening to our collection of records produced by 70s pop icon Gilbert O'Sullivan, we resolutely soldier on. Tom, did you know that Drew has never purchased or used glue for anything in his entire life? I had no idea, Chuck. Do you know why? Please tell me. Because Drew's word is his bond. Yes. Yes. As it should be for all of us. Absolutely. The people who make Elmer's Glue, the Borden Company, 
is awfully glad that it's not the case for the rest of us. The rest of us, are, they're happy that we're liars. <laughs> In other words. <laughs> well, now on to today's assigned topics. First of all, in sports. Over the last decade and a half or so, the National Football League has adopted a number of rule changes, many of them designed to improve on-field safety for the players. And while it might be safer now to be an NFL player, those rules changes have also impacted play. And the question is, how have those rules changes impacted the game? And has it also thus impacted interest in the game? Yes, yes, and yes. Okay, that's it for the, this week. <laughs> we'll see you next week with our show. <laughs> Should we go over some of those rules changes, you think? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. It really kind of started with a guy that I know you were a fan of, Carson Palmer, who was with the Bengals. A lot of it, you know, what I'm going to talk about right now. Uh, and also Tom Brady. Carson Palmer, in a 2006 playoff game, suffered a knee injury when he was hit by a Pittsburgh Steeler player who was coming in to try to sack him and dove at his legs. Tom Brady also suffering a knee injury in 2008. And as we all know, nobody can touch Tom Brady. (laughs) So pass rushers, because of that, were no longer allowed to lunge or dive at a quarterback's knees. They also now cannot be hit in the head. Other defenders sacking a quarterback have to be careful not to land on the quarterback and drive him into the ground with the full weight of their body. So basically for quarterbacks, it's almost like touch football in a sense. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, at the same time, while the NFL is doing this for quarterbacks, defensive linemen, outside linebackers, and say blitzing cornerbacks and safeties can still be cut blocked. Yeah. Go figure. Yeah, go figure. And then there's there's also the the 2009 rule change that it was illegal – uh, it's an illegal hit on a defenseless receiver if the initial force of the contact by the defender's helmet, forearm, or shoulder is to the head or neck area of the receiver. That's an automatic 15-yard penalty. So uh, it's really on both ends of, of the pass, and I think that's contributed some to the inflated numbers that, that we see in the passing game as well. Now, obviously, uh, the, the, the focal point offensively in the NFL has turn very much toward the pass, and uh, we've seen less dynamic running backs in recent years than, than we had been seeing. But I do think those rules changes are a huge part of that. Well, and I don't like the one regarding the defenseless receiver. I understand the concept, but at the same time as a defender, your job is to prevent the guy from catching the football. And this rule says essentially you let him catch the football and then you can hit the guy. And, and that defenseless player is also, uh, it goes into the aspect of a running back whose forward progress has apparently been stopped. Right. Well, if he's still trying to move and the whistle hasn't blown, you should still try to hit him. Absolutely. That's football, in my opinion. Right. That's what football is all about. And if you're a receiver going down the field and you're crossing in the middle, you should have an idea of where the defenders are. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's limiting now players on the defensive side, their ability to stop opponents. You know, you and I have played backyard football together, flag football, that sort of thing. You know how slow the game moves for me <laughs> because because I move slowly. But at that level, at the NFL level, the, the game is so fast. And, and those decisions have to be made, not just in a second, but in a split second. And it is incredibly difficult for a defender moving full steam to let up, change direction, do whatever he has to do to avoid that kind of an illegal hit. Absolutely, Tom. And I, I'm wondering if guys like Ronnie Lott of the 49ers. He's exactly the one I was thinking Steve of. Steve Atwater of the Broncos, Doug Plank, and Gary Fensick, who played safety for the Bears, guys who were able to separate receivers from passes they were about to catch. And that's just naming a few. There are others uh, you know, that were very, very good. Jack Tatum of the Raiders was another one who was outstanding at it. Of course, he had the unfortunate incident when he was trying to do that with Daryl Stingley, who was paralyzed after a hit during a game that was, you know, Jack Tatum was just playing football. He hit him hard. That's what his job was. I understand football is a game played by large men who can lift a lot of heavy weight, who can run very fast and bring it when they have to, mm-hmm. when they have to hit somebody. Right. It's just part of the game. As players have gotten bigger and faster, you find this, to be the case. Uh, you know, I remember, I think Mike Ditka, when he was a tight end back in the 1960s for the Bears, I think he weighed about 220. 
Right now, he'd be a wide receiver. He wouldn't be big enough to play tight end in the NFL. Mm -hmm. I think in the 60s, centers generally weighed 250 to 260, tackles about 270 or so. There weren't that many 300-pound guys. And some of these 300-pound guys, they might be 300 pounds, but they can run. Well, I remember, you know, looking at, at Topps football cards as a kid and, and you know, flipping over, looking at the backside of the card, guys' heights and weights. And I remember looking at offensive linemen at that time, and I, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was 290 pounds. I thought, daggone, this guy's huge. Well, 290 in today's game is small. I mean, the, the game has just changed. The players have changed. The size, the, the athleticism, it has all changed. That said, when it comes right down to it, do we watch football hoping to see somebody's career end by getting hit late, uh, getting hit the wrong way, getting paralyzed, blowing out a knee, or do we watch football to see the, the quarterback throw for 400 yards and five touchdowns, to, to see that wide receiver go for a buck 50 and three touchdown grabs. Why do we watch the game? And I like to see hard hits. Of course, I don't like to see dirty hits. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if a guy is playing hard, and he's, especially if it's from my team, and he really sticks somebody, I get juiced up about that. The fans who are watching, say, in the stadium get excited about it. The players get excited about it. And it has a tendency also to impact play by that particular team because his teammates get juiced up about it. I was thinking about what we talked about regarding quarterbacks getting hit in the head. It's almost ridiculous now, that rule. And I understand that you can't blast a guy in the head. But I saw a game earlier this season where a pass rusher came in. Of course, he had his hand up to block the pass by the quarterback. But as he was going by his hand glanced against the helmet. It was totally unintentional. Bingo, here's a flag and a 15-yard penalty. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you. I think there has to be some sort of judgment by the officials, intentional or unintentional, not just if you hit them in the head. Right. And, and you know, to a degree, thankfully, intent has been built into the, the targeting rule to an extent. I agree that needs to be looked at as something that should be evaluated with some of these other rules to protect the quarterback in particular. Well, in 2018, they added to the targeting rule, and I'm all for the targeting rule. I don't think that uh, people should lead with their head and right. try to drive their head or their shoulder into somebody's head, things along that line. But in 2018, it was ruled that defensive players cannot lower their head to make tackles. Well, they teach you to tackle around the legs. Right. Unless you're Inspector Gadget, how the heck are you <laughs> supposed to reach down there and, and, and tackle a guy around the legs? Right. Offensive players running the ball, when a defender comes in, they lower their heads and their shoulders to try to create more impact to try to break tackles. Mm -hmm. So I thought that addition to the rule was unnecessary. And from what I've read, there are defensive players out there who aren't quite sure what they're allowed to do anymore. So they sort of dive at players' legs, and we've seen that. And they don't really try to take their legs out with their shoulder pads or anything else because they don't want to be called for targeting. Mm -hmm. You know, thankfully, over the years, the NFL has made rules changes. Sometimes they've gone a bit overboard. They've been a bit too extreme, and they'll moderate. They'll they'll make those adjustments. They'll realize, eh, maybe we went a little too far this time, and they'll make those changes uh, to, to bring it back toward the, the, the center for, for some balance. Hopefully that'll be the case again here. I, I did some looking because I was curious, have these changes really impacted um, performance by quarterbacks? Are we truly seeing greater numbers from quarterbacks as a result? We know Tom Brady. I mean, that, that it's obvious the numbers he's put up are ridiculous. But when you look at the NFL's career passing yards leaders list, you've got Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Peyton Manning, Brett Favre, Philip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger, Dan Marino, Matt Ryan, Eli Manning, and Aaron Rodgers in the top 10. Only one of those guys, Dan Marino, did not play in the 2000s. So yes, it has had an impact. And that, that same trend tracks true with career passes completed and career touchdown passes. That that top 10 to 15 is littered with guys who have played in the last 20 years. There's another rule that was put into place that has made it 
safer to play quarterback, the intentional grounding rule. Yes. It used to be that you had to throw the ball to somebody. You couldn't just toss it away. And now once a quarterback gets outside the so-called tackle box, where the tackle box is just basically that area between the tackles, mm-hmm. your right tackle and your left tackle, once he gets outside that, he can do whatever he wants to do with it. You know, he can run to the sideline, just toss it to a ball boy or something along that line, uh, which has made it easier because it used to be a quarterback would have to run around back there and find somebody to throw it to or make it look like he was throwing it to somebody. One thing that's impacted is sacks. Yes, that's impacted the number of sacks. Uh, it's also given quarterbacks, because of that, less hits that they take. So when they're taking less hits and they're not getting as beat up, Tom Brady or whoever, Aaron Rodgers, then they're more effective as players. So it's become easier for a quarterback to play because he's not getting hit in the head, he's not getting hit in the knees or below, and he can get rid of the ball and just throw it away when he feels like he might get hit once he gets outside the tackle box. And that's one reason why Tom Brady at age 44 is still playing football because if he'd been playing back in the 70s with guys like Terry Bradshaw, Bob Greasy, and all the rest of these guys, I don't know that he could have had a career as long as he's had Mm -hmm. because he would have taken a heck of a lot more punishment. I think about the defense, for instance, the Pittsburgh Steelers had back then. Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. You know, Tom (laughs) Brady would have been hamburger meat (laughs) for those guys. But now maybe those guys would have trouble playing because of the rules that make it difficult for them to do their jobs. Yep. And, and so the NFL is walking this tightrope of trying to maintain fan excitement about the game and interest in the game and keeping the game fun to watch and at the same time trying to make it safer for the players. Another rule that's changed, kickoffs. That I know the NFL, I think, would like to get rid of kickoffs. To me, and I'm a guy that in high school for a brief time during my high school football career, got to return kickoffs, and I really loved doing it. It was fun. It's one of the most exciting plays out there in a football game. It has the potential to be really, really exciting when you think about what could happen regarding some of these returns. Back in the old days, kickoffs used to come at the 40-yard line, and then what you had was these kickers coming in with bigger and stronger legs and the 40-yard line to kick it into the end zone or all the way past the end zone was really not a challenge for them. So then they moved it to the 35. Well, they're still booting the ball out of the end zone. So in order to allow for more kickoff returns, they moved it to the 30. Well, now they're saying, well, there's too much impact on these kick returns between the kickoff team and the kick returning team because they're basically running full steam at each other, 11 on 11. And so what they've done is move the kickoffs back to the 35. I hope they never get rid of the kickoff, though, because I think it's a fun play to watch. And I know that returners are sometimes six, seven, eight yards deep in the end zone, and they'll bring them out. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the play that scares me much worse is the punt return. Uh, I've, I've seen punt returners just turn into rag dolls. And so, I mean, if I, I would if, – if the NFL were ever to get rid of either the kick return or the punt return – to me, the punt return is the more dangerous of the two. It's a different skill set altogether, one I never have possessed. I actually got a chance in a men's flag football league after college, and I played with some guys who were great high school players, great college players. One had even been a part of an NFL roster at one time. And they said, well, you're pretty fast. Why don't you go back there and return punts? Well, I started realizing the challenge, the first punt I returned, or tried to return, the ball's kicked straight up in the air, and I'm looking up, I have no idea who's around me as I'm catching the ball. I do like the idea of the halo around the receiver, but at the same time, if you time it just right, you can still drill that guy pretty well. Uh, You have to be a real dodge and dash guy to return punts as opposed to kickoffs where you can see the entire field in front of you and where the blocks develop. So that's something I think that... uh, uh, I don't know. I, st- I still like watching great punt returners because I'm amazed at the job that they do sometimes. A rule I'd like to see changed or got rid of or whatever is the tuck rule, which came about after a 2002 incident in a playoff game between the Raiders and the Patriots in the snow up in New England. Tom Brady was trying to bring the ball back down after he couldn't find a receiver. He got hit, lost it. And it was supposed to be a fumble, but the tuck rule said no. He actually had his arm going forward, so they ruled it an incomplete pass, which changed the entire complexion of that game. The Raiders, had they been allowed to recover that ball as a fumble, 
likely, in my belief, is would have won that game. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they need to differentiate between trying to pass and trying to bring the ball down to tuck it under your arm to protect yourself from a hit or maybe to run with the football. Agree. And that, that's, and that should be something that, especially with review, should be easy enough to, 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 to manage and, and navigate as officials. Okay. What else you got? Anything? Um, well, as we look at this, and, and we, we're not really trying to turn this into, into a discussion of how does this impact deciding who's the greatest of all time. You know, is is Tom Brady the the goat as far as quarterbacks, and you know, trying to take into consideration all the rules that protect the modern day quarterback in comparison to some of the old timers who were great in their own right, but you know, because of the rules at that time, played a much more physical style game, a much more run oriented game. And I, I came across kind of an interesting way to look at it. This is from a 2017 article by Sean Cunningham at Inside Hook. And he he puts forth this idea that it's a crude but effective way to adjust for the fact that modern quarterbacks have both longer careers and typically throw the ball more times each game than their predecessors. He suggested looking at the career leaders in yards per pass attempt. There are some modern players um, who are on that list in the top 10, Romo, Rogers, Roethlisberger, Wilson, and I think Brady may be on there now. But number one on that list of yards per pass attempt is Otto Graham, who retired in 1955. Mm -hmm. Number two is Sid Luckman from 1950. And number three is Norm Van Brocklin. All three are championship-winning Hall of Famers. And and the Dutchman, Van Brocklin, even passed for 554 yards in a single game. And that was unheard of Oh, yeah, back then. Yeah, absolutely. Yet none of those... Those guys cracked the top 50 in career pass completions, touchdowns, or yards. But they are obviously and, and, and should be considered among the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history. Was Johnny Unitas on that list? Uh, he was a little bit further down. No, I don't think he was in the top 10, but uh, he, he did at least register on the meter there. Yeah, when we talk about, as you mentioned, that's not our discussion for today, yeah. greatest quarterbacks uh, of all time. It's hard to compare eras because the game, the rules, the equipment, so much different. Yeah. Uh, the athletes themselves are so much different because uh, the money they make allows them to train all year, essentially, and they're a lot bigger, stronger, and faster. But mm-hmm. these players from yesteryear were no slouches, and I, I get really tired of seeing some of these people who talk about how they couldn't even play today. But if you put them in the same set of circumstances and the same advantages that the athletes of today have, no doubt in my mind, these guys would still be great because they knew how to play the game. You know, Chuck, you're talking about, you know, the difference in equipment and, and uh, those factors. One other thing I did look at is regular season games played at quarterback. And I do think it's interesting and it's a testament to their toughness Earl Morrill is at fifth on that list, Fran Tarkenton sixth, Vinny Testaverde's twelfth, John Hadel thirteenth, Sonny Jurgensen fourteenth, and Dave Craig fifteenth. So even though they're not on that list as far as career passing yards, touchdown passes, they're still as far as regular season games played right there in the mix with some of today's modern quarterbacks. And, you know, all these things that we've talked about, those were some tough guys. Oh, absolutely. Well, Tom, that kind of wraps up our part of the show about sports where we discussed the NFL rule changes. And now we'll take a moment and we'll pause, come back with our pop culture topic. All start, everybody but the center. Today on our pop culture topic, Tom, as you and I both know, the 21st century has brought changes to the information and entertainment industries, particularly libraries, books, newspapers, and magazines and their usage. We're going to take time now to examine those changes and why they've occurred and maybe even possibly forecast where they might go. And I had a chance uh, to look up stuff about libraries. I like libraries. Now, I don't go nearly as often as I should, and I know I didn't when I was in school because, well, I could show you my GPA, and that would be all the evidence I would need to indicate that. But uh, library usage is actually not too bad. I thought it was going to be way down. There are 17,000 libraries in the United States which circulated 
an estimated 2.5 billion materials per year. Since 2004, library usage is actually up, and mainly because they've added such things as free Wi-Fi, public computers, e-books. People go there to fill out job applications. Some of these places have even put in like small cafes so people can gather there with their friends and spend time. They're trying to offer different things as they move into the 21st century. And since 2012, cities and counties are actually investing more money in improving library infrastructures with updated technologies, likely computer stuff is what we're talking about. In 2013, the Pew Internet and American Life Project reported that 54% of Americans ages 16 and up had used a public library within the past 12 months, and that usage has remained pretty steady since then. So the good news is libraries seem to still draw in clientele. If you believe the American Library Association, which I don't think there's any reason not to, there are They've more, probably done their they research. They probably have. I would hope a library would. There are actually more public libraries in the United States than there are Starbucks. That's and actually a way. good thing, if, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> libraries are a lot, generally a lot more cost-effective, too. Um, and, and according to the ALA, librarians in public and academic libraries across the country answer nearly 6.6 million questions every week. Really? Yes. Wow. That's pretty impressive right there. If everyone who asked a question formed a line, it would span all the way from Miami, Florida to Juneau, Alaska. The interesting thing when we talk about library usage, it's actually down on college campuses, if Hmm. you can believe that. College students who have other sources to access information from are using those other sources rather than their libraries, although the studies show that the students who do use their campus libraries have higher GPAs on average, and students, I think, prefer the internet to the library. In other words, they can access it in their dorm room or wherever. Uh, It says 73% of them prefer the internet to going to the library. Interesting. I do wonder as we look at the evolution of the library because of the way things have changed and we're moving to more electronic and and online, I love the library too. I'm just thinking out loud and, and for the sake of conversation, how many of these new services and evolving services that libraries are offering can be offered by another entity? Maybe a few, but not all of them. And I, I think it's a one-stop center, one-stop shopping center for some of these services that we're, we're talking about. And I read this too. Public libraries still enjoy a great deal of support from the American public. 80% of U.S. citizens, 16 and older, say libraries remain very important. And they really say that book borrowing also is extremely important, which I like to hear that. Yes, and, you know, really, books are still popular. I mean, it's it's not a question of, of hardback and, and, and softback books not being popular anymore. I think it's just the, you know, where are we headed with this trend uh, with, with the digital age. But, yeah, I, I do agree with you, too, as far as the one-stop shop. And uh, according to the ALA, 73% of public libraries assist their patrons with job applications and interviewing skills. provide access and assistance to entrepreneurs looking to start a business of their own, but they don't have the physical space or perhaps the access to technology and to the Internet that they need to get things going. So, uh, you know, it's not just a question of the the knowledge and, you know, the, the depository for those sorts of things. Libraries really are still an economic boost and do play a role, I think, that goes beyond just what we think of as uh, what the typical library is for. This may also play into this a little bit, Tom, because we're talking about books, hardback, and and softcover. Book sales remain steady, 760 to 800 million a year. And that also includes some e-books, too, as well, from the years 2013 to 2019. And the only year that book sales have really taken a dip was back in 2009, which, of course, was the year of the Great Recession. Since the pandemic of 2020, 
print book sales are actually up, which you might guess people are sitting around. What do you do? I guess, well, I'll read. Yeah. Good for them. Regularly surpassing 650 million copies a year, more than 60% of U.S. adults will read at least one book in the next year. And those of you who are behind, get with it. <laughs> you, you, owe, you owe us a book to keep this statistic up. Well, and uh, something else that surprised me, that statistic you mentioned, over 60% uh, of Americans saying that they would read a physical book. Uh, in 2017, that data was drilled down a little bit more. That number was actually 75% of people aged 18 to 29 claim that they would read or had read a physical book in that year. So this idea that it's the, the youngsters, the millennials, who are, are guilty of, of killing the library industry or the print publishing industry, they're actually leading the pack in keeping printed books alive. Tom, I want to tell you this. I've got a 15-month-old grandson. You know what his favorite thing is? Books. Books. He loves to look at books. Mm -hmm. He loves the pictures. He loves when his mom and dad read to him. Uh, he loved it when I came by last week and had a chance to read him a book before his afternoon nap. And good reading habits, as you know, start early. I know your kids are good readers, too, as well. My kids were. And I think those habits are still with them. And I think that they'll pass those on to their children. And we'll always have a place, I think, for hardback and softback books. Now, what do you think about these things, these screens? I guess they're called Kindles. My wife has one. They have books inside them that they come up on the screen and you can read. It's okay. I've, I've read some books off of her Kindle, but I really do like to have a physical book in my hands. I yeah, prefer that. I do too. Um, you know, I, if I'm reading off of a screen, I would much rather sit at my computer desk and read it on the big screen. My eyes have a tendency to jump and skip a yeah. little bit. I, I don't focus as well for right. whatever reason. Right. Uh, my wife has used the Kindle uh, a lot more than I have. Um, but she's moved away from that as well. And she's more inclined, if she's not going to actually read a book, she'll go to book on tape or, or you know, audio book as opposed to the Kindle. Um, I, I could never get used to the Kindle. I, I tried it a couple of times, didn't like it. I, I'm like you. I would much rather have the feel of, of that actual physical book in my hands. Well, I must also put this disclaimer on there that I also have the attention span of a sand place, so I mean, that's probably why I like to have a book in my hands. Now, my wife does well with both. She handles both and jumps back and forth between the two, but I'm a guy that needs that book in my hands, and I will always probably be that way. And it, there's something comforting about seeing that book on my shelf that anytime I want to, I can walk over and pull it down and read a chapter out of it, or look at, in my case, the pictures a lot. <laughs> uh, it's just something about having that book and owning it that makes me feel good. And I have a lot of favorite books on my shelves. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think a lot of people display their books. It's it's part of their home decor, for one thing. And they're great conversation starters. Somebody comes over, you've got company, you know, they're looking at your books on, on your bookshelf there. They'll say, oh, have you read that? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I, from a socialization standpoint, it isn't just the book clubs. It's, you know, actually people in your home Looking at what you've got to display is part of your library. Now, the confusing thing, magazines, magazine sales, way down, hmm. all right? Since 2007, when it was $46 billion, in 2019, the last figure that I was able to find, it was $26 billion. Print advertising and subscription revenue has also fallen off. Well, probably because of the internet, for the most part. But at the same time, as of 2020... There were 222 million magazine readers in the United States, ages 18 and older. And that's down from 2019. But of course, in 2019, it was at an all-time high at 228 million. And uh, right now, we're above what it was in 2012, which was just shy of 211 readers. Right now, if you can believe this, this figure blew me away. As of 2020, there were... 7,416 print magazines out there. Wow. 7,416. And I don't know if that includes, say, annuals. You, you and I like to read some of the annuals for different sports like baseball, football, or basketball. Mm -hmm. And that was actually up from 2019 when it was 7,357. So all those things are kind of confusing as it, uh, 
where are magazines going? Who, who reads them? Obviously, they're being read, but the revenue is down. Subscriptions are down. They're picking them up off the shelves, obviously. Mm-hmm. It, it is a bit confusing, um, and I I would say when it comes to magazine uh, consumption myself, I almost put magazines and newspapers in a similar category, and when I think of those, I think current events, I think immediacy of information, and to me, the physical form in that case isn't as important as the access to the information that I'm trying to find. And, uh, you know, if I can find it on the Internet with just a few clicks, as opposed to having to wait for the mail to run and bring my next printed copy of, you know, whatever, uh, Sports Illustrated, you know, Guns and Ammo, you name it, uh, I'm just going to go to the Internet. Oh, from what a friend told me, Playboy is also Uh, no longer in circulation. It's actually online. I haven't looked, by the way. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. But I used to get... Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, that got too expensive. I dropped my subscription to that. And uh, I guess they still print that. Uh, I also used to like to get the Sporting News. Mm-hmm. The sporting News was an absolute weekly favorite of mine. I couldn't wait to run to the mailbox to get that. It used to have all the box scores from all the baseball games in there. It had information from all my favorite sports. The sporting news was just the Bible of sports, so to speak. But now, if you want box scores, you can find every box score in history online. So it kind of defeats the purpose. But they had the most detailed box scores of any outlet that you could find in print. And, you know, if if you're a historian or, you know, a a huge fan of a particular team and you want to keep those sorts of things, it's nice to have that physical repository right there at your fingertips. And there is something to be said for online. You've got this issue of link rot where, you know, you you click on a link and you get that 404 page cannot be found. And, you know, so those sorts of things do are detriments. They're downsides to to going online. But, you know, I can typically find those box scores online. I I don't need to wait for the sporting news to show up four days after the fact to, to take a look at that. Right. And I used to love the columns that were written. Yep. Joe Falls was oh, one of the columns who I used fantastic. to really enjoy. Yep. Dave Kindred was in there for a while. There's a number of them that were just tremendous writers. And the sporting news was just just a lot of fun. Yep. And I used to love to read. And we're moving into something else. The Chicago Tribune Sunday edition, mm-hmm. the sports in there, they had the most complete baseball and NFL and college football coverage on a Sunday, uh, you know, I had to wrestle my stepfather for that thing. I used to get up before he did so I could run and get the sports section before he got to it. And then he'd be after me because he wanted to see it too. But there was so much to go through that it took me time. And sometimes I wanted to go back through it because it was so enjoyable to look at that stuff. And that kind of brings us into the newspaper angle of this daily circulation, of course, as we know, is down. In 1950, it was about 40 million. Uh, the Sunday papers, I think, were about 28 million. It grew into the mid-70s to about 60 to 62.5 million. And it stayed pretty steady into the mid-90s. And guess what happened in the mid-90s? The Internet came around. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Al Gore. <laughs> <laughs> but in 2004... I was looking at the graph for this. It started to slide. That's when the slide really started. Daily circulation dropped to 57.7 million. 2008, it was 49.1 million. In 2020, down to 26 million. Digital circulation in 2020 went up by 27%. On Sundays, it went up about 26%. Newspapers are struggling, and some of these numbers are skewed a little bit because great papers, longtime newspapers like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal have not been contributing to the reporting on these numbers, so we don't really know where they are, but I have a feeling that even if they did report, it wouldn't improve the numbers that much, no, and they may actually decline a little bit. That no, may very well be. I worked in newspaper around the time that the electronic issue and, and the Internet started to uh, rear its head in, in that industry. I, I, this doesn't it totally explain everything, but I really think newspapers mismanaged the transition 
or, or at least coming up with a way to have a companion online version and print version. A lot of newspapers at that time were afraid to move too quickly online, and they also didn't charge initially for online access. And I think that came back to bite them in the butt badly because once people get used to getting something for free, they are very reluctant to start paying for it further down the line. Exactly. And I think a lot of newspapers that want to charge people now started out with free access to their online version. Now they give you basically uh, maybe four or five free reads, Mm -hmm. and then after that, you have to pay. Right. And I understand that. But also, I guess, driving this, too, is the fact that the cost of paper and ink-to-print newspapers has skyrocketed over the last several years. Subscription prices, I guess, uh, back in 2008, you could get a yearly daily subscription to the New York Times for about 250 bucks. Now it's a thousand. Wow. I did see though, for instance, the Chicago Tribune back in 2008 was $234 a year, which was very reasonable even for back then. Uh, but I went online today to look at what their cost was, and they offer all sorts of deals. And actually, their cost to get a subscription, and I, I based it on my zip code from a city I lived in just north of Chicago growing up, it was only slightly more than that figure. So newspapers are starting to catch on, and I think they're trying to make their money off their online services, too, to help fund their print versions. But also newspapers like the Cleveland Plain Dealer, they don't print every day anymore, just a few days of the week. The rest you have to either get online or wait for the paper to show up next time they deliver. I hate to see the demise. But I love newspapers. I, yeah, absolutely. Again, and I, I think, Tom, you'll, you'll back me up on this. I've read newspapers online. I've read them in their natural form in print. The print versions have more depth to them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I I do think some newspapers are wising up a bit and they are putting more stories online that, you know, they'll, they'll have certain stories that there can be some free access but for some of their more in-depth coverage or um, something that they know is going to be really attractive to readers, they'll require that subscription for you to have access. And I, I, I think from a marketing perspective, a business perspective, that's a good hook to try to try. Well, they have to. Yeah. If they're going to stay in business, they're going to have to make their money. Yeah. Advertising revenue is great. It does help fund these newspapers quite a bit, but at the same time, they need that internet version of the paper to also make them money. So people are now subscribing more to that. And I've gone into some of these uh, newspapers, newsrooms, and they ain't like they used to be. Not nearly as many staff members in there working, so they've tried to trim back their staff. And I'm not going to say trim back the fat because a lot of these people had very important jobs in their day, but now they just can't afford to both pay for these printed versions of their paper and also the staff members. So now you have people doing more. And sometimes they're they're just not capable of producing what they used to produce because right. they can't be everywhere. I, I think back to when I worked as a reporter in, in a, a daily newspaper newsroom. And, you know, I answered to the local news editor, the managing editor, and the editor, along with occasionally the editorial page editor. Anymore, you're lucky to find one of those, let alone three or four. Uh, there, there's just, like you said, a lot of trimming and the size of the new staffs severely scaled back. And I think that has hurt. It's been kind of a snowball effect that ha- I think has hurt the level of coverage, the quality of coverage. And I think readership notices that and they don't want to pay any more for an inferior product compared to what they were used to getting. I'll ask you this question too. Now that there are like a billion cable news services out there on television, has that impacted this situation to a oh, degree? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I do think there's some merit to local news coverage, but you know, even local TV news coverage has expanded. You look at, you know, you used to have one 30 minute newscast before you went to the national news. Now you've got some stations, three hours of local news coverage leading up to the 30 minute nightly news from, from the, the network. So yeah, uh, that's been a huge impact. But what you lose is the depth that a newspaper provides. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
because a TV station, because it has so many stories to put on in a certain amount of time, whether it's a half hour or an hour, can only spend so much time with a certain story, maybe a couple of minutes before they have to move to the next one. Mm -hmm. The clips that they use, the video clips are very short. So-and-so said this, a neighbor said they saw what happened, blah, blah, blah. It's over. Now we're wrapping up the story and we're moving on to the next one. Newspapers provide more depth in the printed version than any other news source out there. I always said the advantage was TV gave you the pictures, newspaper the depth, radio the immediacy, because if you had a phone, you could be on the air within a snap and reporting on that particular incident that might be happening. Yeah, a real-life, real-time example. My day job, I work for a hospital, and obviously with the COVID pandemic, that's been big news. We had a national news organization come into our hospital, spent probably six to eight hours on site interviewing people, shooting video. By the time that package was produced for on-air use on the national news that night, they used about 30 seconds worth of what they gathered. That's inefficient to me, Tom. I mean, six to eight hours to produce that short of a package is ridiculous. They were pulling from other sources too, but still six to eight hours on site for 30 seconds worth of content. That That's just not good. If you're working for me and I'm the news director at that particular outlet, I'm saying half that pal. Get it in half the time and get back here and go to work on something else. But it, it, it speaks to your point about that lack of depth. You're not getting, you know, if, if that had been newspaper, you can guarantee there would have been a whole lot more column inches dedicated to that Absolutely. time. Absolutely. So we'll see where things go. Well, Tom, thanks as always for your help on the show. My pleasure. We appreciate you filling in this week for Drew. Drew is still wherever Drew is. Uh, Maybe we'll have to ask Waldo when we find him because he might know where Drew is. (laughs) But uh, hopefully Drew will be back. Uh, We will tell you that uh, halftime with Chuck and Drew will be going through some internal modifications. Let's just call it that. And we'll get more details to you as these modifications are made and present themselves to us. So you've been listening to Halftime with Chuck and Drew. Don't forget, if you'd like to drop us a line, an email, talking about the show, maybe some comments about what you like, what you don't like, or maybe if you have some topical suggestions, we'd like to hear that too. And our email address is halftime240 at gmail.com. Halftime240 at gmail.com. He's Tom Lewis. I'm Chuck Moraz, and you've been listening to Halftime with Chuck and Drew.